Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I've entitled our message today, Your Life on God's Altar. During the Vietnam War, there was a man named, a general named William Westmoreland. General Westmoreland was a World War II veteran and a Korean War veteran and a hero in both. So he had risen in rank, and during the war in Vietnam, he was placed in charge of strategy. I would not have wanted that job. Several years ago, I visited a war memorial in Vietnam, one of the major, I would guess you would call it a a national park or something like that. Vietnam, I believe, is still technically communist, even though it's opening up and has a, a booming third world economy. And as I was in that war memorial, they were still showing the films uh, that they would have shown back then about how they trained and what they taught people, and it was still, in a sense, from a Western standpoint, propaganda movies, still insisting on a view of history that the whole world knows is not true, as they were saying that, that the South Vietnamese were, were invaded and never wanted to push back on the North Vietnamese, and it was fascinating to see decades removed in history the same words. I saw massive bomb craters and walked by them. I shot the weapons, the guns that were used in those battles. Not very well, by the way, but I shot them. I crawled through underground tunnels that housed a large group of soldiers. And it's interesting, when you drop into one of those tunnels, they were expanded a little bit for Western bodies, which tend to be a little bit bigger. But all of these maze of tunnels underground, which would create absolute a nightmare for most people, the claustrophobia I went through, I got out of there as fast as I could. But as I was talking to some of the people who were running the camp, people who actually had been involved in the war on the other side, I heard their stories. Heard stories about tunnel rats, soldiers whose job it was to drop in and to fight in those tunnels to try to track down enemy soldiers. And so the Viet Cong would actually create false tunnels that would get narrower and narrower and narrower to trap enemy soldiers underground. These tunnel systems were so sophisticated that uh, they would cook underground and they would put chimneys maybe 30 or 40 or 50 feet away from where the kitchen actually was underground so that when enemy soldiers were walking around looking for them, they couldn't just drop a grenade down a chimney and assume they would hit people in that kitchen. Once I experienced all of that, I could see that this would have been an almost impossible war. I suspect General Westmoreland concurred. The Viet Cong initiated a massive troop movement called the Tet Offensive. Westmoreland, during the Tet Offensive, had all of the officers that served him sit down, and this is what I want to emphasize here, he had all of his officers sit down and write their own obituaries before the battle. Tell your story about how you lived, and tell your story about how you died before the battle. And he did it to create a mentality that their lives were over, and they might as well get used to that idea now. They were all going to be sacrificed, and if they could accept that, then fear would be less of an issue 
because they would look at their lives as though they were already given. They were commanded to do that, and they did. The Apostle Paul uses that same term, the idea of being a living sacrifice. You might as well consider your life over. It's sacrificed on the altar of somebody else's cause, even though you're still alive. He uses that same term in our passage today and says we are to voluntarily take on that view of ourselves in God's cause. You're to consider yourself as assigned to Jesus' cause. Your life, as it was, is over. Now that seems a little extreme. Paul says otherwise. And I want you to look at uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 with me. We're going to put it on the screen for you. And here's what it says. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I just want to look at two main points here and then a few applications this morning. First, a living sacrifice is a rational response to all that God has done for you. A living sacrifice is a rational response to all that God has done for you. So Romans chapter 12 verse 1 is a significant transition point in the book. And we know that because the word therefore is there. Now whenever you see the word therefore, you need to see what it is there for. A little hermeneutical thought. So Romans 12.1 looks backward through the whole theological argument of the book. It's basically a summary of chapters 1 through 11. And then chapter 12 verse 1 to the end of the book is all about how we live out our faith. So you've got sort of this theological section followed by a practical section. And the point I'm making is this. Obedience for the Christian is a rational or reasonable or, or sort of a good common sense response to what God has done for you. And here's Paul's argument. In chapter 1, Paul says, we were all hopelessly lost. We had a broken relationship with God. We had broken relationships with each other. And we were acting out on that in every way. And in chapter 1, Paul is saying that the whole world needs the gospel desperately. It needs a Savior. And by the end of chapter 1, he's pointed out how the sort of the pagan world, the lost world, just has no sense of who God is and how lost they are. And all of the church people of Paul's days would have been saying, Amen, Paul, you go get them. And then Paul says, wait a minute, the religious world is exactly the same. And the religious world that Paul walked into was largely lost as well. Because even though they had a greater knowledge of God, Paul's point is they really do the same things that everyone outside of the religious world does as well. Maybe sometimes on a lesser scale, maybe not. They have the truth. They tend not to practice it. And the problem for religious people is this. People who come from sort of the pagan world or the irreligious world, they kind of get that they need God. They kind of get that they're really not living lives that probably please God if there is a God. But people in the church usually feel like they are. 
And so religious people lose their sense of need. And Paul points out by the end of chapter 2, he says, hey, everybody is lost. Everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs what Jesus offers to us. And so in chapter 3, he's saying that we need righteousness. We need the ability for a holy God to be able to say to us, you are righteous. You are morally and ethically perfect because nobody gets into heaven without righteousness. And the sad news is, the real bad news is for all of us who have this sense that, hey, we do need to be better, is according to God's standards, and this is something we don't set well with, the only way you can get into heaven is if you have perfect righteousness on your account. Not just was sincere but sincerely wrong, not just tried pretty hard, not just the good deeds outweighed the bad deeds. No, 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 no. Paul says, and God's word said, if you want to get into heaven based on Being good, you need to be perfect. In fact, the brother of Jesus wrote that in James chapter 2. He says, if anyone keeps the whole law, by that he means the Old Testament sort of decalogue, the Ten Commandments, there were really 500 and some, but if anyone kept all of God's commandments perfectly and yet offends in one point, breaks one law, you're guilty of all of it. We say, that doesn't sound fair, doesn't sound reasonable, doesn't sound accurate. You're only breaking one. James' point is this. How many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? One. That puts us into big trouble. I did that on the way to church today. There's a 50 mile an hour zone. I guarantee you I do not keep that 50 really well. You need to break one law to become a lawbreaker. James says in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, as Jesus is explaining not just the, the letter of the law, but its spirit, he says something similar. He says, you know what? You've been taught you're not supposed to commit adultery. He said, but I'm saying to you, it's not just that you're not supposed to commit the physical act of adultery. You're also not supposed to have lust for somebody in your heart. He says, you've heard it was said you're not supposed to kill somebody, but Jesus said, I would say there's a little more to that. It's not that you're just not supposed to kill somebody, but you're not supposed to call anybody a fool. You're not supposed to have hatred in your heart. And he goes through one command after another and demonstrates that by the time it's over, if you actually understand what God meant behind the Ten Commandments, we all break all of them. And God expects us to be perfect. Romans 3, 19 and 20, Paul says, nobody is going to be justified or declared righteous by keeping the law. The law was given to us, God's rules were given to us to show us our sinfulness, to show us that we can't keep them so that we will look for righteousness from another source because you're never going to find it within So Paul says the the world is lost, the religious world is lost, we all need righteousness, and we can't find it within, and it's always been that way. Chapter 4. In chapter 5, Paul says, here's the good news. Jesus offers this righteousness to us. He came into our world to rescue us, and as the perfect God-man, he was righteous. He lived a perfect life. He kept all of God's laws. So when we place faith in Christ... God takes Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, and he puts that in our legal account in heaven. He takes our sin, puts it on Jesus on the cross, and this incredible transaction takes place where we are declared righteous. We are justified. It's a gift from God. We can't do it. We can't earn it. And then in chapters 6 through 8, Paul says not only are we then sort of 
uh, legally righteous with right with God. We're, we're made right with God legally, but then he's going to change us ethically. The Spirit of God resides within us, and he connects us to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He puts to death that inclination we have to do the wrong thing, and he gives us eternal life, and the Spirit of God begins to change us. In fact, God is so intimately involved in your life by his spirit that even suffering can be used to transform us into what God wants us to be. So Paul is arguing God rescued you. God gave you the righteousness you could never achieve. God connected you to the power to change. God blew open the access to the gospel to everyone, chapters 9 through 11, and you just walked into it, into all of it. You've gotten all of these incredible blessings from a God who loves you when in reality we were lost. Imagine a king invites you into his palace for a party. And on the invitation, it states, no gifts. No gifts. So you're thinking, well, I know I should bring something to, to this party, but that's the rule, no gifts. And I've been invited. So you go with your spouse or your date. You arrive to observe absolute beauty. You've never been in a place like this. And at some point in the evening, the king makes a presentation. And as the king is making that presentation, he singles you out by name. And so you step up in front of the king with your spouse or your date. You're brought right to the throne. And there the king makes a decree. He says, all of your debts are forgiven. I'm paying for them. He says, not only that, ever after this, you are adopted into the royal family. The prince is your brother. You're now one of us. You never have to work again. You have everything. You're going to live here with us. The question, how would you respond to that? Well, if you've watched The Crown, you might not want to be a part of that. But for most of us, when we think of royalty, we think, well, that, that sounds like a blessing beyond measure. How would you respond? You're, you're overwhelmed. Your life has been forever altered. You can never pay it all back, nor are you supposed to. You've just been blessed beyond measure with undeserved grace and generosity. And my guess is that you would tell the king something like this when it finally is your turn to talk. Wow. I don't know what to say. I'm overwhelmed. I can never pay you back. I didn't deserve this. But, but you need to know this. From this day forward, I'm yours. Whatever you want, day or night, I belong to you. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Romans 12:1 is all about. That's his point. You were invited to God's palace party. And in that palace party, God gave you everything. Invited you into his family. Forgave all of your moral debt. 
made you a brother and sister to Jesus Christ. And Romans 12, 1, is the natural response. I, I could never pay you back, God, but, but you need to know I'm yours, day or night, whatever you want. Could never pay you back. Could never earn it. But I'm giving you me. And that's what he says. Notice a few of the words there. Therefore, in other words, looking back on the whole book, we offer ourselves to God. We present ourselves. We offer ourselves the word. It, it, the Greek tense there would indicate like a one-time event. Once you realize all that God has done for you, you just recognize my life belongs to God. And it's going to be lived on God's altar. He says we present our bodies. Why would, why would he say that? Because that's where life is lived, it's through our bodies. And it's probably also a corrective because there were people in Paul's day who felt like they could be right with Jesus sort of in their mind and in their spirit and let their bodies do whatever they wanted. So it's a very clear theological argument that we live out our lives to honor God through our bodies. We're a living sacrifice. Unlike a typical sacrifice that dies, we remain alive, committed to God. We're a holy sacrifice, which means we're set apart unto God, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Some Bibles have the word reasonable there. Greek word is logikos. Our reasonable or logical act of worship is to give ourselves back to God once we understand what he's done for us. The second point Paul makes is a living sacrifice is no longer a good fit for a world hostile to God. Now the reason I stated that point that way is because of the word that's used here, the world. Be not conformed to the world around us. Now, the word world there is not, not an evil word in the Bible. It just means cosmos. It means the arrangement of things. But here what it means is this. This is the negative connotation of the world. The philosophical system organized against God and his kingdom. So sort of the philosophical belief system that we experience around us that is organized against God and against what God is trying to do in our lives and in this world. That's the kind of thinking and behaving that we're called away from. It's the belief that you and I are the center of the universe, not God. It's the belief that pleasure is life's highest goal. It's the belief that God hasn't really spoken and you know, we can get to God in a variety of ways, but there really isn't a true God, there isn't absolute truth. It's the belief that your body is your body. That God has no governance over how we behave, what we do. It's the belief that if there is a God, there are many paths to him. He's here for us, not us for him. He's the subject to our judgment, not us to his. So God sort of needs to measure up and adapt to the 21st century else. We're going to leave him behind because he does seem a touch outdated and old-fashioned. I think we'd all agree with that. He seems to be out of step with modernity. And we need to get him to catch up. In fact, if God were to write the Bible today, it must be totally different than what we see because God doesn't seem to be in sync with modern culture. He's got a problem. He needs to adapt to our changing views of right and wrong. That's the world. 
That's the world. There was a recent poll from the Barna Research Group highlighting what's been called our new moral code. Now, I'm suspecting this was probably a research uh, project done in the U.S., so we'll just throw those U.S. Christians under the bus. I'm happy to do it, even though I'm one of them. Here are the percentages of those who agreed completely or somewhat with the following statements. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults agreed. 76% of Christians agreed. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Kind of sounds like Eastern religion a little bit. People should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. Now, that's a little more practical. 89% of people agreed. You should just let, let live and let live. Let everyone else do whatever they want. Don't be telling anyone anything is right or wrong. 76% of Christians agreed with that. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. You want fulfillment? Figure out what's going to make you happy and go after it. 86% of people agreed. 72% of Christians agreed. I think the Bible would say to be fulfilled in life, follow God, love him, obey him. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. I kind of like that. I don't want a lot of pain in life. 84% agreed. 66% of Christians agreed. The highest goal in life is not to enjoy it as much as possible. It's to honor God with your life. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% agreed. 61% of Christians agreed. It doesn't matter what people believe. Sort of keep it to yourself. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% of Everyone agrees. 40% of Christians agreed that whatever you want to do with your parts is your business as long as you're not violating anyone else's will. Based on these results, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons conclude, the morality of self-fulfillment is everywhere, like the air we breathe. Much of the time, we don't even notice we're constantly bombarded with messages that reinforce self-fulfillment in music and movies and video games and apps and commercials and TV shows and every other kind of media. All of that is the world. And that's what Paul is saying. You're a living sacrifice. You're up on God's altar. You're set apart for the very God that the world is hostile to. Don't be conformed to that world. Don't be pressed into its mold. Good way to explain that word. Don't be pressed into the world's mold. Don't be conformed to the world's pattern. But be transformed. Metamorphose. Same word we use of caterpillars turning into butterflies, which when you think about it, it seems like a miracle every time it happens. How, how can it be that something can be so radically changed? Well, that's what God wants for you. You, you, you go in one way, you come out another because of what God wants you to become. This happens by the renewing of our minds. We're, we're starting to adopt the palace standards, the palace ethics. The palace's moral values. The king who invited us to his party and gave us everything. Now we got to get on his page. It's his standards. We now follow the king. 
we got to fit in to his kingdom. A few thoughts as we close. First, how have I responded to the king's party, to grace? Well, this is always a good question because I think even if you're a Christ follower, often we still don't get this right. And there's three possible ways to respond to grace. There may be more, but I'm going to talk about three. One is a lot of people, even on this side of faith, are still trying to earn it. And I think, to be honest with you, for much of my Christian life, I've kind of been like that person a little bit because a lot of this is going to have to do with your wiring. And, and, and many Christians still feel like, well, God saved me, but I'm still trying to earn it. They're not doing Romans 12, 1, where, oh, I love you, God. I'm giving myself back to you. These are the kinds of people who are kind of keeping score yet because they assume God is keeping score. They do something bad. They feel like they need to do something good. They don't ever really feel forgiven. They don't really feel justified. So somewhere in the back of their mind, they're still trying to earn grace. And you can be a Christian and go to heaven that way, but here's the problem. It's going to rob the joy from your life because you never can earn it. So some people are still trying to earn the king's party. Some people ignore it. They, they just don't change. They kind of feel like, well, that's great, and I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to let it transform me to the degree that God wants it to. And Paul warns about that in chapter 6. You know, some people feel like, hey, I can keep doing whatever I want. I can continue in my bad habits. I don't have to be transformed. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You can't earn it, but grace, God's goodness to you, is intended to have an impact. It's meant to change you. Or you can be that living sacrifice that Paul talks about. When you understand the totality of all that God has done for you, your response should be to the king, I'm yours. Day or night, whatever you want, you can count on me. I could never earn what you've done for me, but I'm yours. Second, do I see the difference between the regular world and the hostile world? Now, the reason I say that is this, because Paul doesn't break out a difference, but I think that we kind of struggle with this, because not everything around us that's in the world is bad, you know? Not everything's bad. Not everything in the world is bad. Great I mean, great example of this is Hollywood. I'm a movie watcher, I'm a Netflix watcher, I'm an Amazon Prime watcher, and I, you know, I, there's a lot of great entertainment in the world today, and put that on the background, you know, whatever you're doing, you kind of have a little Netflix going on in the background. There's some wonderful work that Hollywood has done. And yet Hollywood also has probably been the number one transformation of values to the negative in the Western world. You know, it's funny, this isn't in my notes, but I spoke on this before. It was in my notes then, is if you were to turn off your TV in 1959 and never watch another uh, commercial or anything on TV, did you know that you would not know there was such a thing as a queen bed? Did you know that? If you watched the old shows that were like before 1960, Hollywood would never show you a man and a woman climbing into the same bed. That's how conservative it was. That's Hollywood. They would always have like two beds with a nightstand in between, and evidently everyone slept in a single bed. I don't know how children were created or formed, but everyone slept in a single bed, and there was a nightstand in between. You never saw a queen or a king bed. You never saw two people climb into bed together. 
I think you would agree the world has changed. I think you would agree. It's changed radically. Now, I'm not saying it's bad that Hollywood shows two people climbing into the same bed. It's just, interestingly, never mind. All right, so you get the point. Hollywood does wonderful work, and it also represents the world trying to change our values and ethics and everything about how we think. In a study included in the archives of pediatrics and adolescent medicine, children were shown to overwhelmingly prefer the taste of food that comes in McDonald's wrappers. The study had preschoolers sample identical foods in packaging from McDonald's and in matched but unbranded packaging. The kids were then asked if the food tasted the same or if one tasted better. The unmarked foods lost the taste test every time. Even apple juice, carrots, and milk tasted better to the kids when taken from the familiar wrappings of the golden arches. This study demonstrates simply and elegantly that advertising literally brainwashes young children into a baseless preference for certain food products, said a physician from Yale School of Medicine. Children, it seems, literally do judge a food by its cover, and they prefer the cover they know. These kids actually believed the chicken nugget they thought was from McDonald's tasted better than an identical nugget. By the way, McDonald's, these kids are right. McDonald's does make it better, but that's beside the point. From an early age and on through adulthood, branding is directive in telling us what we think and feel, who we are, what we love, what matters. In the same way, how often are we as adults blindsided by mere wrappings? The beliefs and values that mold us, the images and liturgies that shape our affections. Is the mistake of a child in believing the food tastes better in a yellow wrapper really any different than our own believing we are better people dressed with the right credentials, covered by the latest fashion, repeating the right belief systems? What they're saying is little kids are kind of brainwashed by McDonald's. And I should not be arguing against that since I go through the McDonald's drive-thru so many times every week. But I think the point is, how much are we influenced by the wrapping that the world has put on belief systems and values and ethics? And how hard is it to choose the plain wrapping that Jesus puts on values and morals and ethics? Philip Yancey in his book, What Good is God, wrote in about the 2004 Ukraine election, in which the reformer, Viktor Yushchenko, challenged the government party and nearly died for it. On election day, the exit polls showed that he won with a comfortable lead, but through outright fraud, the government reversed those results. Yancey writes, that evening, the state-run TV reported, ladies and gentlemen, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. However, government authorities had not taken into account one feature on Ukrainian TV. The translation it provides for the hearing impaired, the deaf. On the small screen insert in the lower right-hand corner of the TV screen, a brave woman raised by deaf-mute parents, gave a different message in sign language to the deaf in Ukraine. And here is what she signed. I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say next to me on the screen. They are lying, and I am ashamed to translate these lies. Yushchenko is our president. And no one in the studio understood 
what she was saying via sign language to the deaf in Ukraine. Inspired by that translator, deaf people led what became known as the Orange Revolution. They text messaged their friends on mobile phones about the fraudulent elections, and soon other journalists took courage and likewise refused to broadcast the party line. And over the next few weeks, as many as a million people wearing orange flooded the capital city of Kiev to demand new elections. The government finally buckled under the pressure, consenting to new elections, and this time, Yushchenko emerged as the undisputed winner. Yancey makes the following point. Our society is hardly unique. Like the sign language translator in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, along comes a person named Jesus who says in effect, don't believe the big screen. Don't believe the world's TV news. They're lying to you. They're telling you that you should have a set of values that I am opposed to. Don't believe Hollywood's channel. They're lying to you. And Jesus says, you are here as one of my followers to expose the lie and to point people to the truth, to Jesus. But are we able to sort out the lie? Are we sure of ourselves? Are we helping our kids to sort out the lie? Because every institution in the Western world is trying to get us to buy it. Third, do I fit in everywhere I go? Or do I create some Jesus tension, is what I'm calling it. One author writes, my brothers and I traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to raft the Zambezi River. We boarded our raft at the base of Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spill over the top of the giant falls and drop almost a thousand feet. The roar is deafening. The falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from the spray that fills the air like fog can be seen for 50 miles. The locals call it smoke that thunders. The water from the falls rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. In the U.S., the highest class rapid you're allowed to raft is a class five. Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top seven and eight. As I sat on the edge of the eight-person raft, all suited up in a tight overstuffed jacket in a thick crash helmet, I felt like an overcautious tourist about to mount an overpowered moped in Honolulu or rent rollerblades in Huntington Beach. The Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it? Then our guide said this. When the raft flips, he didn't say if the raft flips. He says, when your raft flips, then he went on, stay in the rough water. When your raft flips, not if, when it flips, stay in the rough water. Don't get in the stagnant water. Don't get in the calm water. You're going to be tempted to swim towards the stagnant water by the edge of the banks. That's going to look like safety. Don't do it. Because it's in the stagnant water that the crocs are waiting for you. They're hungry and big. So even when the raft flips, you need to stay in the rough water if you're going to live. If you're never in rough water as a Christ follower, if you're always in the stagnant water, the easy water, one of three things is going on in your life. 
possible if you're never in the rough water, if you're never creating any Jesus tension around you. It's possible that you've just adopted the world and you're comfortable there. And, and that's water that you're happy to swim in and somehow you figured out a way to, to sort of say, I believe this, but, but I buy that too. And God does seem awfully strict, doesn't he? And I think I can fit in everywhere. It's possible you've just adopted the world. And I suggest that Jesus and Paul would have a problem with that. Second, it's, it's possible that you disagree with the world. And, and inside you're torn up as you see the world moving further and further away from sort of a Judeo-Christian ethic and a belief that there is absolute truth and a belief that God is relevant in people's lives. It's, it's possible that as you see these things happening, you cringe inside, but you just remain silent. You just don't really say anything. You're hurt by it. You might even pray about it. But you're silent. And Jesus and Paul would have a few things to say about that too. It's also possible, and I think this is very common in our lives and probably in our church, it's very possible that you're kind of living in a Christian bubble. That you're being silent maybe a little atrophied, maybe underutilized, not because you would never speak up, but because all you're around are other people who kind of believe what you believe. You're not integrated, you're not engaged in the world around you because all your friends are Christians. And they're not going to speak up against something in God's word, and so, so you're not engaged. And Jesus and Paul would have something to say about that too. One of the reasons Didi and I are, are so excited to be in our new home is we're kind of in this condo where, you know, it's probably 150 units or so, and they're locked under the same roof as we are. And we plan on getting to know them and trying to touch their lives. And I hope they're not watching this video right now. Because that's our job, is to integrate ourselves into the lives of people around us so that they may find the king's party that he invited us to where he gave us everything we couldn't earn it but he gave us everything and so we said I'm yours whatever you want day or night that's what God wants from all of us I'm yours whatever you want day or night you've done so much for me I want to give you myself in return God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help each of us as a response to your goodness, as a response to your grace, to do what Paul said, to just recognize that all of life after this is intended to be a gift back to you because you have done so much for us. It should be the natural response. Paul, Paul indicates this is just going to be a one-time offer because when we as believers understand what you've done for us, your grace, your forgiveness, your gift of righteousness in Jesus, the natural response from all of us is going to be, okay, I'm yours, God, whatever you want, day or night. You invited us to the king's party. You, you were generous with us. Now we just want to give you back the one thing we can, and that's our lives. We're, we're a living sacrifice. We're signing over our futures to you. Help us, God, to do that.
not just a sort of a, a mental exercise that we do once and say amen and move on with our week, but day by day recognizing we belong to you and you want to use us to make a difference in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.